0: everyone Good. Good to see you. Let's get after. If you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two is where we will be this morning. We like to pride ourselves here at the church as being open to all everybody and accepting them initially, and so we're taking that literally this morning with the open door policy. Okay, all the doors are open. I expect it didn't happen first service. So I'm sorry. This is gonna be the service. Some critter will come in here at some point. A bird of some sorts. If you remember a few months ago, do you remember the bird pecking at the window? That I told it to stop, and it stops. I use my spirit powers, right? I'll try to do the same uh, if we can do that. Also, I apologize if I'm hacking a little bit during the sermon. I am dealing with a terrible cough. People are giving me the black plague look when I'm in public. Um, But I feel much better than I sound, so don't feel too bad for me. Uh, But if I have to stop and cough for a few seconds, um, just bear with me with that. We are in a series called Ascension Matters, a three-week series. We started it last week, Um, two Thursdays ago, Thursday, May 14th, was in the church calendar uh, considered Ascension Day. It's the day when Christians stop and celebrate and feast and have a party to remember the fact that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, it's one of those um, things in Jesus' life, it's one of those theological doctrines that we often skip over don't think about a whole lot. Um, in our kind of Western context of church, and we want to reclaim some of those things. Um, today is actually Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar. Um, the day we remember that after Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, he poured out the Holy Spirit on his people to transform them from the inside out to fulfill the promises of the new covenant that we would be in new hearts and new minds and be able to go out into the world and join Jesus on his mission with his spirit. And the Ascension and the Pentecost go together um, very closely. Now, I have suggested last week that Christians, particularly in our position, are missing out on vital opportunities to have more holidays and to have more celebrations. And that it's never a bad thing to party a little bit harder or a little bit more. Um, In the Old Testament, when you look through it, they had many more vacation days than we do in the American workforce. Um, They had more time, God says, stop what you're doing and celebrate Think about what I've done and enjoy yourselves. Eat a big meal. Drink some good drink. Enjoy each other. Laugh. Exaggerate some stories. Make fun of each other a little bit. Have a good time and celebrate what I've done for you. (coughs) That's what I was talking about. Now, (laughs) I was doing some research over the past couple weeks and I've actually learned and I'm a little bit upset at this, okay? So my feelings are a little bit hurt. I'm feeling a little bit um, just not quite with it and in other parts of the world, some countries still have civil holidays for the Ascension Day and for Pentecost. In certain countries in Europe, last two Thursdays ago, people did not go to work because it was Ascension Day. Um, and sometimes they come up with other ways to explain, you know, why they're not going to work. It's Bank Day or this or this or this or that. But it traces back to this is the church's calendar, Ascension Day. And every Thursday when it falls, there's no work. Germany is one of those places. <coughs> also Pentecost. And in a lot of countries, again, over in Europe, uh, the Monday after Pentecost Sunday is a national holiday. It's a civil holiday. There's no work. You don't go to work on that. Now, America, which prides itself as a Christian nation, I think is lagging here. I think we're lagging big time to um, so-called secular countries over in Europe, right? The post-Christian Europeans. Um, Really, what's happening is that's a remnant of Christendom, right? When the church was so powerful over in those countries, and they made the civil holidays, or religious holidays. But we have the perfect opportunity as Christians to reclaim these these deep truths and these celebratory times to celebrate the Ascension and to celebrate Pentecost. And that's what we've been doing throughout the series and hopefully we'll keep doing over the next couple of weeks. So you'll remember we have our own Ascension celebration coming up next Sunday. Uh, Please sign up for the potluck uh, out there. We'll have it after second service. (coughs) We'll be thinking about ways that perhaps we can celebrate the Ascension. Christmas and Easter, they all have their traditions and their rituals and things you do that are meaningful and fun and remind you of the meaning for the celebration. So, we need to be creative and have some ideas start to percolate in our own minds. But what maybe we can do as a church family to remember and celebrate the Ascension. So, that'll be next Sunday. So, last week we looked at what is the Ascension. We saw that it is the resurrected Christ who still has a human body, who still is 100% human going into God's space, going into heaven. He ascends into heaven. And we saw how that fits into the story of salvation. Because the the greatest need for humans, our our salvific need, our need for salvation and rescue, comes from the fact that, one, that we have sinned. and Jesus' cross, his crucifixion deals with the guilt and the punishment for our sin. Two, it deals with the fact that we're going to die, and Jesus' resurrection defeats death so that we can live forever. And then three, it deals with the fact that we need to be with God. In God's space and Jesus the human goes on our behalf to heaven bringing you and I with him and one day We will enjoy life with and among the Trinity forever as Jesus has now this morning and next week We'll look at some of the things that Jesus is doing currently as the ascended the ascended man as the ascended Christ He's not resting. He's not napping. He's not just biding his time until the second coming He's doing some important and valuable things and that's what we'll look at over these next couple of weeks so acts two. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 in Acts (coughs) 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this town the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these men speaking Galileans? (coughs) And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, I've never been able to get over that the first <laughs> accusation leveled against some of the Christians was that they were drunk in the morning. Okay? <clears throat> they had these kind of miraculous signs surrounding them. They were filled with this joy and exuberance. And all right, I think it's a, a bad thing that Christians today sometimes are known for being stodgy and uptight and in bad moods and judgmental, um, when in fact maybe we should be um, participating in behavior that maybe we should have to defend ourselves against being drunk, right? But no, no, no. We're actually filled with the Spirit. We're not day drinkers here. Okay, this is this is us living a life of peace and joy through the um, life that we received from Christ. And so Peter gives the first Christian sermon. And it's a defense, it's an apology, apologetics against why we're not actually drunk. This is the spirit being poured out into us in fulfillment of God's promises. He says this This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and he quotes from Joel 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Interesting, your sons and your daughters, male and female, will all prophesy filled with the Holy Spirit. And your young men shall see visions. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, he says, remember Jesus' ministry. Remember all the miracles that he performed. All the healing and life that he gave to people. Remember the teachings that he gave. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. This Jesus was crucified. He went through death on the cross. But, in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he quotes Psalm 16. (coughs) I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell with hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and that his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, the resurrection. So we've got Jesus' ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But it doesn't stop with his resurrection. It doesn't stop with Easter. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, ascended, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's a quote from Psalm 110, and it's a very important quote, and it's a very important text for how the early Christians thought about Jesus and his ascended state. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The climax of Peter's first Christian sermon is that Jesus lived, he was born, the incarnation, the Christmas story, he died the crucifixion he resurrected and now he is ascended now he's at the father's right hand lord of lords and christ of christ president of presidents prime minister of prime ministers the climax of the christian gospel here the very first sermon is that jesus is now in his ascended state at the father's right hand reigning as king over the entire universe And for Peter and all of the early Christians, this is the fulfillment of a psalm, a very important psalm for them. Flip with me, if you would, to Psalm 110. (coughs) Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted pieces of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a very important passage about the Messiah, the King, that the Jewish people were expecting, who Jesus turned out to be. Psalm 110, we see the verse quoted just now by Peter, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So God is saying to David's king, who's the Messiah, who's Christ, Sit at my right hand, come and take a seat of power until I make all of your enemies your footstool. So I destroy all of your enemies. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the worm of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. <coughs> the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment against the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus' ascension, the climax of the gospel story, according to Peter and Psalm 110, is that Jesus is now in the CEO room of the universe. Um, The ascension is not primarily about Jesus leaving us or departing from the world. The ascension is not primarily about Jesus becoming the first space astronaut, exploring the heavens and the orbits and the planets and the galaxies. The ascension is not primarily about Jesus coming home and being reunited with his Father. The ascension is not just about Jesus leaving us. He's with us always. He tells us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The ascension is first and foremost primarily about the promotion of Jesus Christ to the position of power as Lord of Lords in the universe. With the ascension, Jesus has been... Um, Put in the Oval Office of the Universe, if you will. All presidents and uh, leaders of power in the world have inaugurations. The Ascension is Jesus' inauguration ceremony. It's when he is lifted up and seated in the heavenlies, where he now has power and control. He comes at the end of Matthew's Gospel and says, "...all authority and power has been given to me on heaven and on earth." As I go, be with my Father to sit at his right hand until all of my enemies are made my footstool. Now, um, what are the enemies of God? What are the enemies of Christ? What are these enemies that he is subduing? These are the enemies of creation, sin, death, and evil. These are the evil things that we quickly identify in our world. Sickness, and death, and poverty, and abuse, and pain tears and mourning. These are all things that weren't originally there in God's good creation. But God has decided to come back and set up his reign, to set up a new government over the world, and to get rid of all of those things. The ascension says this process has begun. Jesus has been inaugurated, and he is now installing, rolling out his plan to set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to get rid of all of His enemies. One of the reasons I think that we fail to appreciate the ascension, the doctrine of the ascension, is that we have a hard time understanding the kingdom of God. Um, If we fail to appreciate Jesus' kingdom, we fail to appreciate his ascension. The fact that there's a new government which God is setting up over all of the nations, over the universe. The ascension is not the end of Jesus doing stuff, it's the beginning. Acts begins by saying, this is the account of the things Jesus continued to do and to teach. Jesus doesn't disappear in order to rest or relax or to stop his ministry. He is seated at the right hand in order to continue his ministry from a place of power and authority. If you'd follow with me to Hebrews chapter 1, we'll see this in the scriptures as well. Hebrews chapter 1. <coughs> in your ESU Bibles, this should be on page... 1001, I believe. Hebrews chapter 1. If you keep a close eye, you'll also see Psalm 110 referenced again. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the ward of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Every time you see this right hand imagery, this is an echo or an allusion to Psalm 110, to David's king being placed on the seat of authority to take rule over the world. Having become... The author of Hebrews says, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And he'll go through and list off certain things that Jesus is and has that is much better than angels. There was some angel worship in the first century. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to convince them Jesus is way better than angels. And if you'll skip ahead to verse 13, you'll see this. To which angel has God ever said, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, this is Psalm 110, verse 1. What angel has that ever been told to? But that has been what has been told to Jesus. Come sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Click to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll pick it up in verse 12. We'll see something similar. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, we see the same language here. Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool to be defeated. Flip one more time with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This will be the last time we flip this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at verse 25. We'll start in verse 20 and, and, and focus on 25 and 26. Page <coughs> 961 in your Black ESV. But in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, Adam, by one man has also come the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the fruits, then it is coming those who belong to God. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Notice that the text doesn't say that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom at the end. He says he will deliver a finished kingdom at the end. After he's destroyed every rule and every authority and every power that would seek to fight against God and his desires for creation. Right now, Jesus is reigning and working towards the day when he can offer up to the Father as a sacrifice, a finished and delivered kingdom. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Christ and of his Lord. And he tells us the last enemy, these enemies to be put on our feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Jesus returns... And all God's people are resurrected to new, bodily, and eternal life. This is, according to the scriptures, what Jesus is doing right now. This is why he's ascended, so that he might reign at the Father's right hand. He is currently, right now, continuing his mission of bringing the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. And while you were sleeping last night, Jesus was working and reigning. And ruling, subduing his enemies so that they might be his footstool. And while you nap this afternoon, Jesus will be reigning, working, subduing his enemies so that they might be his footstool. And while the rockets lose over and over and over again (laughs) to the Golden State Warriors, Jesus is reigning. (laughs) working to subdue all of his enemies so that they might be his footstool. And while the American military forces make tactical moves in order to contain and destroy ISIS, Jesus sits above all of it, working, above the nations, through the nations and the nations, reigning, subduing his enemies so that they may one day be his footstool. Now, the problem we have with this idea that Jesus is reigning and working so powerfully as the scriptures present to us. I mean, they're very triumphal in their presentation of this. He's Lord, He reigns, He's been inaugurated. The problem we have is it seems like not much has changed in the world. It seems like He hasn't done a very good job yet of getting rid of all of these evil things in creation. We have plenty of examples of what happens when other people come into leadership positions, positions of power. They roll out legislation. They roll out changes. If needed, they bring out force and military action. And they make things different. They bring their kingdom to bear on whatever it was that was there before. And we look at Jesus and we say, this is a kind of astounding claim that he's been ascended and inaugurated as king of the whole world. And yet the world is still as messed up as it is. For 2,000 years, this is the most progress that he can make. We've seen other kings do much more, for better or for worse. When um, presidents get put into positions of uh, authority, when they enter into the Oval Office, things change. There are noticeable changes. When Obama was elected, Obamacare was introduced, passed through the House and the Senate, and now the health care landscape for the United States of America is different, for better or for worse, whether you like it or you don't like it. There's been a monumental change because a new person has taken authority over the nations, over our nation. And we think to Jesus taking this amount of authority over the universe, and we wonder, where's the change? We wonder, where, where is his legislation? Where is the kingdom being ruled out? Why hasn't much been accomplished? The reason I would want to suggest this morning is because Jesus is not the same type of king as we normally think of when we think of earthly kings and rulers. All of the examples throughout history we've had have, uh, of kings coming into power and changing things and have done so in ways that Jesus prefers not to work through. And Jesus' kingdom is not the type of kingdom that the kingdoms of the world that we are used to seeing and experiencing. It's a, it's a different type. It's qualitatively different. Now there's a couple options here and a couple temptations and a couple mistakes for us to, to make. The first is to say that one, Jesus maybe isn't really reigning right now. But maybe he doesn't actually start reigning until he returns and establishes some kind of physical utopia over the earth. And there are various Christians who believe this. I've never been able to believe this simply because it seems like the early Christians in the scriptures don't believe this. They seem clear that Jesus is reigning right now. That's the good news. This is our announcement to the world, that he's reigning. So you might say then, well, then maybe his kingdom is simply spiritual, Maybe it's it's a kingdom that doesn't involve the world and all of its political realities. Maybe it's a kingdom that just involves our hearts and our souls and our minds. But then again we look at the scriptures and we see that God's desire is not simply for human hearts to be transformed, but for the world itself to be transformed, creation renewed, no war, no poverty. This kingdom doesn't involve these very earthly, political, dirty realities. And we're back to the same question, why then has there not been... Change, And I think it's because Jesus is a different type of king. And his kingdom is a different type of kingdom. His way of rolling out his kingdom is different than how an earthly ruler might often rule out his or her kingdom. So um, we might make a comparison to um, the Iraq War. I don't want to get too political or make a stance on one side or another. Simply uh, to say I think this is a good example. When George Bush decided to go into Iraq... Um, he had a desire to transform Iraq. Um, again, I think depending on where you stand politically, you, you might think this or that about the war. I think most people might agree that George Bush had some sort of genuine desire to do good in the Middle East. Maybe, right, we might have conspiracy theories there was oil and money and stuff involved, right? But, but there were bad things happening over there. Then you know, we stood in the military with the hope at least the American people as a whole, I think, genuinely wanted to transform that nation. To bring peace and life to that region. And the American government decided to do it with a campaign called Shock and Awe, which was to come fast and quick. And, and maybe it involved a lot of killing and a lot of judgment. But, but maybe if we did it quick enough and harshly enough, it would subdue the enemy so quickly that it would it would avoid further killing and a long proacted out war. I would suggest to you though that. Regardless, again, of what you think about that campaign, Jesus' kingdom works the exact opposite way as a shock and awe campaign. Jesus' kingdom works through self-sacrificial love and patience and time and multiple offers for forgiveness and creating space for others to choose to disobey, even if that means that evil continues to exist in the world for quite a while. This might be our explanation for why the world has not changed as dramatically as we perhaps have hoped. Because when Jesus wants to reign, he doesn't bring in the troops and the bombs, he brings in forgiveness. He brings in tables to eat at, he brings in conversations, he brings in genuine offers to repentance that can be accepted or denied. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that rolls out slowly over time, and I think that's what we should expect knowing the character of Jesus. Knowing his nature, and the nature of the kingdom. Jesus' reign is not a shock and awe kind of reign. It's one that gives time and space to the world to accept, to come into submission to his reign. So then we might ask then how does Jesus reign? How is his reign being accomplished? What is his grand plan? How is the transformation of of the world being accomplished? And we are back, I think, again to the story of Pentecost. On Pentecost Sunday, every president, every prime minister has this one piece of legislation they want to pass as soon as they get into the Oval Office. This one kind of signature move that they want to make. And Jesus' signature move was sending the Spirit to his people. His first action as the inaugurated CEO of the universe was to pour out God's Spirit into the church. This is the reason Jesus says, It's better for me to go than to stay with you. If I stay with you, sure, you might be able to have a meal with me, but I'll still be centrally located in this body. I can't be all around the globe at once. Let me leave and send you the spirit which will indwell inside of you. Instead of having a relationship with me side by side, you can have a relationship with God himself from the inside. You can find your hearts transformed. You can find your lives reimagined. You can find a life and a peace and a joy that you had never even been able to dream of. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' course of action as he is elected, as he is inaugurated. And the Holy Spirit is his plan to transform the world. The church is created on Pentecost Sunday. The church receives the Spirit and is bonded together by the Spirit, sent out into mission by the Spirit. And what the Spirit does on behalf of Jesus, the reigning one, is he works in the church and he works through the church. The Spirit works in the church to transform our hearts, to bring healing to us, to bring hope to us, to bring love and forgiveness to us, to bring life to us. Jesus, right now, as the reigning king, knows all of the needs that we have as a church. As individuals, as Christians, as a community, a local community, First Colony Christian Church, as a global church, We might think of Jesus with a computer system, a checklist running off in front of him, right? And he knows right now the the emotional capacity that you have and the spiritual capacity that you're running at. He's aware of these things. And he's directing the spirit and directing circumstances and people to come around you in order to grow you and develop you and mature you. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where you hear the same message over and over and over again? From different people in different places in different circumstances, where eventually you say, Okay, God, I give up. I guess it's time for me to learn this lesson. I bet most of us have experienced something like this. We were going to go around the room and share. What, what do you think is happening there? Do you think this is a bunch of coincidences? No, this is the resurrected Christ looking at you, looking over you, saying, I. I need to guide you towards this. And so I'll prompt the Spirit to prompt you. And I'll send this person to you. And I'll send this situation towards you. And I'll direct you in this path so that you might grow and mature in your faith and your knowledge of me and your capacity to be loved and to love. This is what the resurrected Christ is doing currently in my life and in your life. We're told, Jesus tells us in John 14, 26, that... One of the roles of the Holy Spirit will be to remind us of all the things he's taught us. When we learn these truths, sometimes in easy ways, sometimes in difficult ways, this is Jesus working through the Spirit to remind you, to teach you, to grow you. In this sense, the ascension, the truth that Christ reigns at God's right hand, should create in all Christians this sigh of relief. We're taken care of. There's one who knows our needs. There's one who's more than capable of meeting all of our needs. There's one who's watching over us, guiding us, who has all the resources of the world at his hands, who through his spirit and through his people will work all things out for our good. The ascension should make us confident. The ascension should make us calm. Our hearts are transformed. We're created into new people. But also... Christ desires through the Spirit, through the church, to work in the world, to go out into the world and to work for the transformation of the world, to spread the kingdom not only through our hearts and our communities, but into the communities around us. We have this debate internally in Christianity <coughs> about what Christians should be doing when they engage in mission, whether they should be focused on personal evangelism, just going to individuals and having them submit to the reign of Christ in their own lives or whether they should be working towards social justice to having systems and institutions and nations and governments submit to the rule of Christ and the ascension I think says both both of these are true the church is sent out by the power of the spirit both to go to individuals and invite them to submit to the reign of Christ and to go to the nations and the governments and the systems and the broken institutions of our world and, and tell them to submit to the rule and reign of Christ. The ascension is actually the logic behind mission. At the end of Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There is no mission without ascension. The logic of mission is the ascension. Because Jesus is now reigning in Lord, we are called to go out and share the news, share the announcements. Much like in a foreign land in an ancient time when a new king would take over, you would send out heralds to share the news. There's a new leader in charge. Things are going to be different around here. Here's how he expects things to run. Here's what he desires of his kingdom, of his creation. We are those heralds. We are sent out. This is why Christian mission is not so much an invitation to try something, you might like to try out this religious option as opposed to this religious option as much as it is an announcement. Jesus is Lord. And your response to that announcement doesn't change the truth of that fact. Whether you submit to him or not, he's still Lord. In much the same way that whether we um, pay our taxes or not, or we enroll in Obamacare or not, Obama's still president. Right? Our, our personal opinion, our personal actions don't change the fact that one is reigning, that one has been given that authority. Um, I've used this analogy in the past. Uh, John Yoder was the one who, who came up with it in a book on mission. He says the kingdom is like a, a train, not a taxi. <coughs> in a taxi, you um, get in and you tell them where you want to go. Then you might decide not to get in a taxi. And in that case, the taxi's not going anywhere. And you might not like the taxi, and so you might have to stop and get out of the taxi. Whereas a train is going somewhere, whether you're on it or not. The choice is simply whether you will be on it for the ride or whether you'll be left behind. And and the other says, the kingdom, God's plan of renewing the earth, is like a, a train. It's not dependent on our reactions to it. It's going to happen. It is happening currently. The question is, will we be be left behind or will we jump on the train and join him in this journey? Enjoying the benefits. and joining him in his mission. Much like the ascension teaches us to be calm and confident, to know that Jesus is in control, the ascension teaches us that we are called to join Christ on his mission. To work towards the day where all of his enemies will be defeated as his footstool. And we might go out to individuals and personally evangelize, inviting them to submit to the reign of Christ, to find a new life and a new hope and a new joy and a new peace found in loving and knowing and following Christ. And the Ascension sends us out into the world to go to broken systems and broken institutions and broken nations and broken governments and invite them to submit themselves to the reign of Christ. For the reign of love and peace and beauty and forgiveness and self-sacrifice, that they might find new life, God's life, the life that we were created for. As we come to the table this morning on Pentecost Sunday, the table again reminds us both that Jesus is absent from us. He's not here to eat with us at the table, but that yet at the same time he's present with us. The Holy Spirit makes him real to us as we come and eat the bread and drink of the juice. At the table, we are reminded and called to to celebrate his ascension. To not be sad that he's departed from us, that we, we can't go to subway with him after church, but to be joyful that he is now in his seat of authority, taking control of the universe, watching over you and I, and extending his kingdom out through the world. Reminded that you and I are called to join him in that process. At the table, we come to celebrate. We come to commit ourselves to the mission that Jesus has called us to. Would you pray with me?